actually it's two grandsons, not two granddaughters, but it's a, a pleasure to be with you again this morning to preach God's word and to just celebrate the greatest day in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you as we begin this message just to bow your heads with me and let's ask God to bless what we are about to do together. Father, I pray this morning that you would glorify your son through the preaching of his word. I pray that you would take the word and powerfully impact our lives through it. I pray, Father, that you would bolster the faith of those whose faith is weak. And I pray also, Father, if there are people here this morning who, like Thomas, don't have faith, don't believe yet, I pray, Lord, that you would do a miracle and that you would quicken them, that you would bring them to spiritual life, that you would open their eyes, that you would allow them to see the truth and cause them to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so, Lord, my prayer is simple, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. Use this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mir asked me if there was anything else he wanted to, I wanted to say about uh, in terms of introduction, and I couldn't really think of anything. And then it dawned on me that I'm going to sort of introduce myself as I begin this message. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about when I was a young man, sort of 16 to kind of 20. I had a lot of different jobs. I worked in a grocery store. I was a roofer. If you're thinking of a career choice right now, young man, the whole idea of hot tar roofing, I don't know if they still do it, but that is not a good option. I worked on an oil tanker for a couple of summers on the Great Lakes. I worked as a site interpreter at, at St. Marie among the Hurons where I would dress up as a priest or a, a voyageur or a carpenter. It's an old uh, mission that the Jesuits established years ago back in 1639, and I would do the site interpreting there. I also had a job working in a funeral home, and uh, the funeral home was in Midland, the town I grew up in, and um, I would drive to the hospital and I'd pick up bodies. I would a lot of, spend a lot of time shining the hearse and the, and the various cars. I would drive in the funerals. I would clean the, the funeral home. That summer while I was working at the funeral home, <clears throat> a young man that I didn't know died in a drowning accident. He was a little older than me, and I attended his funeral as part of the staff of the funeral home. And until that moment, at about 18 or 19 years of age, I had never seen the horror and the agony of grief. I'd never seen hopelessness on full display. But as I watched, I, it broke my heart to see that young man's mom holding him and her family pulling him, her away from his body so that the funeral director could close the casket. It made a deep impression on me. From her perspective, all hope was gone. There was no future. Nothing but desolation and misery and anguish and pain, and it was hard to watch. That same summer, two of my friends in our youth group died in motorcycle accidents, Tony and Dean. Tony was a little younger than me. Dean was a little older than me. They died different places, but they both were killed in motorcycle accidents. And I went to both of their funerals. 
And the funerals of my two friends who were believers contrasted so profoundly with the funeral of that young man who had drowned. It was, it was shocking. It was surprising. Yeah, there was grief and there were tears and there was a sense of loss. But undergirding it all was a hope. And for the first time in my life, I understood what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote 1 Corinthians 4.13. When he said to the 1 Thessalonians 4.13, when he said to the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest do who have no hope. See, as Christians, we grieve with a hope. We grieve with tears that are undergirded with joy and a sense of the future and a sense of optimism because of what Jesus has done, because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. That summer, I saw hopelessness, and I saw the difference that hope makes. And although I was young in my Christian faith and my theology was really unformed yet, I saw that Jesus had defeated death in the contrast, the profound and stark contrast between the the way those two funerals played out. I knew that because of the resurrection, Jesus had delivered death, a death blow. The grave had lost its sting. Its horror was replaced with hope and its supremacy annulled by the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus and the truth of the resurrection is not a myth. It is not a fairy tale. It is not a fable. It is rooted in history. Jesus was physically dead, and he came back to life again. And it's on this event that the Christian faith hangs The resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. If you remove the fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from Christianity, Christianity crumbles. This is the foundation upon which our faith rests. Years ago, many years ago now, I was in Calgary in a restaurant with a bunch of friends at a conference And I heard a couple of other guys at the next table talking about evangelism. And so being who I am, I said to them, you guys, Christians, you're talking about evangelizing Canada. And they looked at me and they said, no, we're Muslims. And we get into a conversation and we talk back and forth. And it was very polite and very amicable and very friendly. And at the end of the conversation, the one young man looked at me and he said this, If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you should be Muslims. But if he did, we should be Christians. Now, that's it. That's it. If Jesus rose from the dead, if Christ is alive today, they should convert to Christianity. And Paul knew this. The apostle Paul understood this. He understood the importance of the resurrection to the Christian faith. And so what he does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he argues strongly and persuasively to convince people that the resurrection in fact happened. He argues and he gives a number of witnesses essentially to substantiate and to validate and to support the argument that Jesus did rise from the dead. 
Now, <clears throat> does this mean that, that I can somehow sit down with a non-Christian and argue him into faith? Can I, can I sit down with a, with a non-Christian and try to sort of using reason and rational arguments convince that person that Jesus rose from the dead? Is that possible? I think the answer is no, not at all. Why? Because faith is a gift of God. God has to create faith. He has to engender faith. But before God grants faith to anyone, he uses the facts that underpin our faith to remove the intellectual obstacles to faith. Does that make sense? Before God gives us faith to believe, he uses the facts of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, to remove the intellectual obstacles to belief. And that's what I want to try to do this morning. So as I said in my prayers, we began, if your faith is weak, I want, as a consequence of this time in God's word, for your faith to be bolstered and strengthened. And if perhaps you're here this morning, it's Easter Sunday morning, and you've just decided to come to church to learn a little bit more about Christianity, I want to try to kind of lay the groundwork for you to remove the intellectual obstacles to faith so that if God is gracious to you, he will open your eyes to see the truth, grant you faith, and bring you to that place where you trust Jesus as Savior. And so what I think Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's creating something of a courtroom scene. He is the prosecuting eternity attorney, and he is prosecuting his case that Jesus did rise from the dead. He is prosecuting his case that Jesus is alive, that Christianity as a consequence is the only faith that has any validity. He calls five witnesses to bolster and substantiate his argument for the validity of the resurrection. And the first witness is the witness of Old Testament Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and let me read this passage again with you, the first four verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and this is what he is going to deliver to them that Christ died for, the, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the first witness that the apostle Paul brings is the testimony, the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. Now this is incredibly important. It was so important that on the first Easter Sunday morning, Jesus made this point twice. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 24, and we can see an example of what, how important this is. On the road to Emmaus, two people were walking after the death of Jesus. They didn't know that he had come back to life yet. Jesus appeared to them, and he walked with them. And I don't want to tell you the whole story. You probably know it. But if you look down at verse um, 27, it says this, And Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them all that the scriptures said concerning him. So Jesus was intent, first Sunday of the resurrection, first day of the resurrection, meeting with these two disciples, Cleopas and probably his wife. And he made that connection for them. He said, look, 
Here's everything the Old Testament said about me. It is now fulfilled. A couple hours later, he meets with his disciples. Go down to verse 44. Then he said to them, this is now Jesus meeting with his disciples privately. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you see what he's doing? He is connecting the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures to the event that has just transpired. And if there was any sermon in the history of the world that I would have loved to have heard, it would have been that sermon where Jesus explained throughout the Old Testament how it was that he was to be born and how his life was to be fashioned and what he was to do and what he was to accomplish through his death and his resurrection. Now, you can't replicate that sermon, I don't think, but I think perhaps it might have started with Micah, where he points out that in Micah 5, the prophet said that the Messiah would come from outside of time, from eternity, and be born in Bethlehem. He might have gone to Isaiah, where Isaiah talked about a virgin conceiving and bringing into this world a child whose name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. He might have gone to Zechariah, but he might have said something like, do you remember how Zechariah said that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? You could have taken him to Isaiah, where Isaiah talked about a sinless substitute, which would be buried in a rich man's grave. Psalm 16, how the body of Messiah would not undergo decay. He would see, the, he would see and take joy in those whom he'd redeemed. He might have gone to Psalm 22, where Psalm 22 explicitly talks about crucifixion. David describes it 600 years before the Parthians invented it. Daniel chapter 9 spoke about how he would destroy the temple and establish a new covenant with a a new people of God. That sermon would have been exciting, but I would believe, I would hazard a guess, that Jesus would have probably referenced this passage of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 53. Matthew chapter 53. Let me read for you a few verses from this passage. Verse 3, the first, first part of verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his stripes, we are healed. Over to verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. For he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their sins. The reality is that Jesus Christ was, died, was buried, and was raised again 
in accordance with the scriptures. He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies perfectly. And that's the first argument that Paul brings to this discussion. The second witness that he calls is the witness of the early church. He calls eyewitness testimony. Let me read for you from verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, we preached, and so you believe. So he calls six witnesses, six eyewitnesses, three individuals and three groups. He speaks about Peter, Cephas, Peter, and then the 12 disciples, and then 500 people at one particular time, probably in Galilee. And then he speaks about his unbelieving brother, James. Then all who had followed him during his earthly ministry. And finally, in about 35 AD, he appeared to the apostle Paul. So that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, there were still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in this world who had seen and talked to and interacted with the resurrected Christ. And Paul is essentially saying by implication, look, if you don't believe me, talk to one of them. Like if my testimony about the road to Damascus isn't sufficient... Go speak to one of the hundreds of other people who can tell you that they saw Jesus die at the hands of the Romans and three days later were in conversation with him. One of the things that perplexes historians that they they don't have a good answer to unless they're Christian historians is the almost instantaneous explosion of Christianity in world history. Historically speaking, Christianity didn't exist and suddenly, in the blink of an eye, inexplicably, it existed. Within a few short years, it just permeated the Roman Empire. And and historians scratch their heads to try to understand how this is possible. What accounts for it? How did such a revolutionary social transformation happen in what is historically essentially a blink of an eye? Something like this has never happened in the history of the world. Sure, there are movements, but they are slow. Christianity wasn't slow. Christianity didn't exist. And a moment later in history, it existed, powerfully existed. What explains that? Well, some people will say, It's all a conspiracy that a group of uneducated fishermen from the Galilee, backwaters of the Roman Empire, you can't get any more rural than Galilee in in, in Roman days, got together and concocted this idea of a Messiah dying. When everyone would have expected a conquering, victorious 
Messiah who would lead a military insurrection against the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel, they were going to come up with the idea that the Messiah would die and rise again. And then they committed themselves to giving their lives, if necessary, to perpetuate their lie. History tells us that all of these apostles, the first apostles, died a martyr's death with the exception of John. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is why would they die defending a lie? Why would they give their lives to propagate something that they knew wasn't true? To perpetuate something that they knew was fraudulent? Why would they do it? As a Christian, the answer to that question and the answer to the instantation, the instant explosion of Christianity on world history is, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else explains it. These men and women had seen Jesus die. They had watched the Romans crucify him. The Romans were exquisitely effective at inflicting pain, prolonging death, and killing people by crucifixion. They had seen him put into a grave and they had talked to him after the resurrection. And because of that, they were willing to give their lives because they knew that Jesus was not dead. John relies on the eyewitness testimony. The apostle John, if you read the book of John, he talks about it a lot, but if you go to the, 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 you know, the first John, the epistle, at the end of the book, 5.13, he says, gives you, he gives us his reason why he's writing the book. And he says, I'm writing these things to you, little children, that you may know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that you may know that you have eternal life. So his book is designed to give people confidence that what the Christian gospel teaches is in fact true. So where does he begin? If you have your Bibles, go to 1 John. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Where does he begin? He begins with eyewitness testimony. Listen to what he says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest, revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has been made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the eyewitness testimony is the reason that the church flourished so powerfully, so quickly, so dramatically and dynamically in the first century because people had seen Jesus alive after he was dead. But not only that, after the first apostles died, there was those who were the disciples of those first apostles. We read about Antipas in, in, in Revelation chapter 2, the martyr. He was a contemporary of John. His death, is record, is, his tradition says that he was put inside a hollowed out bronze bull and roasted alive because of his faith in Jesus. Another disciple of John was a guy named Polycarp. 
He was burned alive by the Romans in, in about 150 AD. He was about 80 years old at the time. Papias was martyred in Smyrna at 155. He was also a disciple of John. Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome is probably the same Clement that is mentioned in Philippians 4, chapter 3. He was born about the time that Jesus died. He became the bishop of Rome in 88. Trajan had him banished for Rome in about 100 AD, and they tied him to an anchor and threw him into the Mediterranean Sea because of his faith in Jesus. We could talk about Ignatius, who was martyred in 108 AD, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and others. These, these people saw. This didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't happen at night. It wasn't something that was sort of magically, mystically transpired. It happened publicly. People saw him die. People saw him after the resurrection. And their testimony was the fire that, that just burnt through all of the Roman Empire. So that by the, I would say, 30, 40 years after the death of Jesus... The entire Roman Empire had been permeated by the church through the preaching of the gospel. The third witness that the apostle calls is the witness of the leadership of James. And you'll see the name James there. He appeared to James. And this is a surprise witness. This is a, this is a kind of a, a surprise that you would probably not have expected to see. And I want to just point out certain things that are important to understand when we think about this list of names. It should be noted, first of all, that James was not a believer. So if you read the gospel, we know that Jesus' brother James was not a believer. He thought he was crazy. Secondly, it's important to note note that Paul has not listed all the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Christ. He doesn't talk about the people on the road to Emmaus. He doesn't talk about the women. And that leads us to conclude that this list is very specific and very purposeful. So the name of James is included here very deliberately for us to understand. James had a post-resurrection meeting with Jesus, at, at which time he was converted, obviously, and became a follower of Christ. That story is not recorded in the Gospels, nor is it recorded in Acts. But it happened because we know that Paul is telling us that it happened. And then this is the important one that I want you to really think about. Long before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the Jesus movement. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and as a consequence of the church throughout the empire. And you may ask, why does that matter? Why are you telling me this? Why did Paul include the name James in this passage of scripture? If we only had the gospels and the first couple of chapters of Acts, who would you think would have emerged as the leader of the Jesus movement? Peter, right? You are Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon, and thousands of people get saved. Peter is prominent. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why is James the leader of the Jesus movement in the mid-30s and in the 40s and in the 50s AD? Why James and not Peter? 
Let me, let me offer you an explanation. In early first century Jewish culture, there was a messianic mania gripping Israel. People could read the prophets. They could read Daniel chapter 9. They could do the math. They could figure it out. They knew that according to God's prophetic timetable, Messiah was coming sometime soon. And that messianic mania, that sort of national consensus that God's Messiah, the son of David, was going to come and redeem Israel, created a sense of kind of fanaticism within the hearts of some. A lot of people said, well, I'm him. I'm him. There were lots of people claiming to be Messiah around the time that Jesus lived. Now, we know that not only from secular history, but we know it from the scriptures. Remember, and I don't have time to to turn there, but remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been arrested for preaching the gospel in the temple. They are brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin don't know what to do with them. They want to, some of them want to kill them, some of them want to release them, and Gamaliel stands up. Gamaliel was the guy who at that particular time was mentoring the apostle Paul. And Gamaliel stands up and he says something like this. He says, gentlemen, I want you to sort of take a, take a, take a moment here and just stop. Remember, there have been other messiahs. And he talks about them. He talks about Thutius and Judas the Galilean as an example. And he says, both of them were killed, their followers were scattered, and their movements died. And then he very wisely says, if this is not of God, the same thing's going to happen. But if it is of God, you can't stop it. You see, when a Messiah died, when a pseudo-Messiah died, Judas the Galilean as an example, his claim to messianic leadership and his family lineage would be shown to be false and he and his family would be repudiated. Maybe you came from the line of David, but you are not the Messiah and no one from your family is Messiah. A failed Messiah lost all credibility and so too did his family. However, if he was successful in redeeming Israel, and you have to go back 150 years before this to think about um, Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion against um, the Seleucids, and and he kicked them out. And he established the independent kingdom of Israel, and that, that kingdom existed until the Romans came about 100 years later. And when Judas Maccabeus died, you know who took over? His son, family member. When that guy died, who took over? A brother, a family member. You see, that was the cultural mindset of the day. And so here we have this this very, very, very interesting question. How in the world is it that Peter's not leading the church? He's the guy that Jesus said, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. He was the guy that preached that sermon in Acts chapter 2. And led thousands of people to faith in Jesus that day. Peter was that guy with that bigger than life personality. He was that guy that was just sort of always in the front. Always leading. And yet James becomes the leader. A guy who didn't become a follower of Jesus till after the resurrection. How do you explain that? 
Well, the only explanation is that Jesus was successful. Jesus was not a failed Messiah. Had he been a failed Messiah, we would never, ever, ever have heard of James. James wouldn't have been adjudicating at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He wouldn't have been making decisions about what we tell Gentiles about the law and following Jesus. That would not have been his prerogative. We would not have heard of him had it not been for the fact that the early church was convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was, the, was Israel's Messiah, that he had died, that he was buried, and that he was raised to life again. The evidence of the leadership of James is compelling. But then you got the witness of the Apostle Paul's conversion. The fourth witness he calls is himself. He goes and sits in the stand, and he gives his testimony. He gives his evidence as to why the resurrection is historically true. And he talks about his own experience. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. And we know that story because he kept on telling that story. In the book of Acts alone, he tells that story three times. So you know that in his preaching ministry, he was telling that story over and over and over again, which is a, just by the by, share your testimony with people. Talk to people about what Jesus has done in your life. You are living evidences. You prove the resurrection. And Paul did that. I was going to Jerusalem. I hated Christians. I wanted to destroy the church. This upstart thing that was was against all the traditions and against the fathers, God was clearly against this. He was going along to to arrest and probably imprison and probably murder Christians. And Jesus intersected his life and transformed him, made him the apostle to the Gentiles. The transformation of the apostle Paul is nothing short of miraculous. You think of the most bloodthirsty, violent, fanatical ISIS fighter that you can possibly imagine, and that's the Apostle Paul. And he met Jesus, or better said, Jesus met him. Jesus intersected his life and transformed that man. Greatest missionary the world has ever known. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been doing exactly the same thing in our world. For 2,000 years, Jesus has been doing to people what he did to Paul. People going in one particular direction in their lives, not interested in Jesus, not interested in his gospel, oblivious to their sin, dismissive of the claims of God, are intersected by his spirit and quickened and made alive, and they repent and they turn around, and it is nothing short of a miracle. And what God did to Paul, he is doing today. Today, Easter Sunday, 2022, all over this world, in places that we will never go, people speaking languages that we will never understand, from all all walks of life, every skin color, every ethnicity, every culture, today, people will bow the knee to Jesus as a result of the miraculous work of Christ in our world. And the amazing thing is this, that the change is identical and it is uniform in nature. 
When Jesus does this miracle, when he did it in the life of the Apostle Paul, and when he does it 2,000 years later, when he does it today, the consequences will be exactly the same. People will repent of their sins. They will recognize that Jesus is the risen Savior. They will seek to live their lives to obey him and honor him and glorify him. They will invest themselves. They will pour themselves into the church of Jesus Christ. They will share their gospel, and they will die with hope. And what causes that? When something happens once, it's interesting, right? When something happens to a group of people at the same time, it's notable. You sort of stand back and you think, that's interesting. But when something century after century after century happens to people from all over the world, It's riveting. It, that, that fact, the fact that Jesus is saving people today should grab us all by the scruff of the neck and force us to ask the question, what in the world is happening here? And the only answer for it is not religious hysteria. The only answer for it is that Jesus is doing today in our world, what he has been doing for 2,000 years subsequent to the resurrection. He is saving sinners, and he is conforming them. And it doesn't matter. Like, I, I have preached in literally mud huts in Africa where I can't speak the language. It has to be translated from English to French to Lingala. And those people have absolutely nothing in common with me culturally. But when they get saved and somebody in my hometown gets saved, God does exactly the same thing in their lives. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle. That's what Paul is wanting us to see, I believe. The miracle of the resurrected Christ transforming sinners and making them saints. And the last is this. The witness of absolute forgiveness. Read with me from verse 12. <clears throat> now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there was no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And this is the point that this is the part that I really want us to think about. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in I love this verse, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the last, the last evidence that I believe Paul is directing us to think about is the witness of absolute forgiveness. And he, and he sort of brings us to this testimony by asking the question very honestly, very forthrightly, up front. What if Christ didn't rise again? What if the resurrection didn't happen? What if the Christian faith is fallacious? 
What are the consequences? And the answer is pretty simple. Our faith is futile. We are still in our sins. And we have no hope beyond the grave. No life after death. As I said at the beginning of my message, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. Without the resurrection, Christianity falls apart. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should just all go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Because there's no hope. Our faith is useless. We are still under the impending wrath of God for our sins. And we have no hope in death at all. In fact, Paul says, of all the people on the planet, we are most to be pitied because we are most deluded. And we are still unforgiven. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are under the wrath of God. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the impending anger of God for our sins will be unleashed upon us. And this is a universal understanding, and it is the genesis of every single religion on the planet. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says something that I think all of us know to be true, whether you're Christian or not, and that is that God has written his law on our hearts. God has imprinted upon us the understanding between right and wrong. And he has wired us such that when we do wrong, we feel guilt and we feel shame. And there is a sense that there must be consequences as wired into us. We can try to suppress it, we can try to deny it, but it is there. And it is, as I said, the genesis of every single religion on the planet. Every single religion is rooted in this one universal premise. And every single religion prescribes the solution. The solution to sin. The solution to guilt. How to be right with God. How to get to heaven. And they prescribe the solution. And the solution is always follow our rules. Follow our path. Climb our ladder. Do what we say. Be a good Catholic, be a good Protestant, be a good Buddhist, be a good whatever. Climb the ladder to get to God. Follow the rules and be saved. But the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that it's not what we do that saves us. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. It's his life, it's his death, it's his burial, and it's his resurrection that saves us. We believe as Christians that Jesus on the cross fully satisfied God's anger for our sin. That God vented all of his wrath for my sin and your sin on his only begotten son who perfectly, perfectly sacrificed himself. He lived a sinless, perfect, law-abiding life qualifying to go to the cross as God's final substitute for sin. And in that moment, those six hours on the cross, God vented his wrath on his son. He poured it out upon Jesus so that we could be forgiven. And so by trusting what Jesus did on the cross, I can be saved because the Messiah paid my debt. And that's why that verse, I just love that verse, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. One of the greatest evidences, perhaps the greatest evidence of the resurrection is that there are people today 
who know that they haven't climbed the ladder, who understand in their soul that they didn't merit and can't merit anything, who have accepted the fact that they will never be good enough, who appreciate and recognize and acknowledge that religion doesn't save us, that you can't climb the ladder, that God is too holy and I am too sinful, and that the only way that I will be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is not of works, that is not about religion, that is not about trying harder, It is not about my good works outweighing my bad works. It is simply falling into the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Do you remember those commercials years ago? I just thought about this this morning. I don't know if this is going to be a good illustration or not. Remember those commercials years ago about 7-Up, the Uncola? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the unreligion. And the reason I say it's the most compelling powerful evidence is the gospel of grace is because it cannot be of human origin. Everyone understands that we're under the wrath of God. Everyone understands the law of God because it's written on our hearts. Everyone understands that there's going to be a day of accounting and everyone concludes that in order to rectify the problem, I'll climb the ladder of my religion except people who have been born again who recognize that it is the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that saves me. Christians are people who understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And who are given the grace of God to repudiate the gospel of works, the gospel of religion, the gospel of trying to get my good works to outweigh my bad works, It's those who understand that it's only through Christ that we are saved. We rejoice in that truth. We rejoice in that truth this morning as we worship. And we'll rejoice in that truth again in a few minutes as we worship again. But down deep in your heart, you know that when you were dead in your sin, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, when you wanted nothing to do with God, when you were maybe sort of trying to climb a ladder somewhere to get to him, that he made you alive. By grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that none of us have anything to boast in. That's the evidence. That's the evidence. And so what does Paul say in closing? Well, he's saying that Jesus is the first fruits of those who sleep. Because Jesus came out of the tomb, the tomb is no threat for us. Because Jesus defeated the grave, the grave is no threat for us. Because Jesus is alive, we will always live. Death has been conquered. Death has been vanquished because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Owen, who lived 400 plus years ago, wrote a book. It's a great book. Greatest title, I think, in the history of books. It's called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Death died when Jesus died. Death died 
when he rose again. So I don't know where you are in your journey to Jesus. I don't know where you are in terms of the strength and the rigor of your faith. But I want to tell you this. These evidences convince me that Jesus Christ is alive. And I prayed this morning before we started that if your faith is weak, that it would bolster and strengthen your faith. And I also prayed that if there's anybody who would come this morning who has never bowed the knee to Jesus, who has never embraced the unreligion of the gospel of grace, that you would simply this morning trust Jesus. Believe that he died in your place, that he suffered God's wrath for you and receive the forgiveness that he offers and know beyond any shadow of a doubt the hope that is ours in Christ. So let me just pray as we close. Father, I just thank you so much that we can have hope. I thank you that our faith isn't rooted in fairy tales or cleverly devised fables, as Peter says, but is rooted in historically verifiable facts. And Father, my prayer this morning is that those facts will have undermined any, some, perhaps, intellectual obstacles to faith and that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning, leading us to that place where we simply say, it's true, it's true, and I trust Jesus. If you've never had that experience, you've never come to that place where you have just rested in the finished work of Jesus, where you've just given over and given up and thrown yourself on his mercy, I just I encourage you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be forgiven and you will be given eternal life because of his death and resurrection. Lord, we just love you. We thank you for what you have done for us and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.